0: Karuna, and this is Triloquy. Thanks so much for tuning in and continuing to support this show and the movement that this show was built to inspire. Shout out to all of the longtime listeners and shout out to those of you who may be new to the mix. Triloquy is a podcast that was born back in 2019 to center dialogue around expanded views and perspectives on so-called classical music. Each week I bring a little something from the field into the space. I feature an interview with a change maker within the industry and I close each opus with a Triloquy. Not a soliloquy or a colloquy, but a triloquy. For more information on the show, go check out uh, the website. You can uh, check past opuses there, and you can donate as well. Appreciate all of your continued support. T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G. Quick shout-out to everyone here in Minnesota. I'm back on a brief trip to do some interviews for the Minnesota Orchestra. Shout-out to Michael Ables, who I've been having some great dialogue with this week. And shout-out to Mary Ellen and everyone over at the Minnesota Orchestra for keeping me in the mix. Also shout out to my homie Scott Blankenship for letting me crash at his place this week. I'm actually recording this from Studio B where early episodes of the triloquy podcast were born really great to be back here in the north star state all right so uh, brian cole comes to the show this week he's the chancellor of the university of north carolina school of the arts or uncsa as it's known looking forward to sharing that dialogue with y'all in a few minutes here but first uh, to get us started i wanted to acknowledge Black History Month, very briefly. Happy Black History Month, everyone. Black history is American history. Um, I'll probably be doing a a little something each week during this month. Um, So uh, at UNCSA, that's uh, in the city of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I actually visited back in uh, 2009 when I was... Uh, Looking at going to grad school there. I ended up going to the University of Southern California, but beautiful town, beautiful campus, and um, some really great things always going on at that institution. Um, But what I didn't know uh, at that time when I was visiting the city is that there's some significant black history in Winston-Salem, and um, specifically regarding Western classical music, so-called classical music. Uh, So maybe you've heard of the Gateways Music Festival. It's a festival based in Rochester, New York these days. It celebrates uh, classical music, Western classical music, that's realized, performed, and supported by the African diaspora—a really incredible festival if you ever find your way up there. Um, so, this all-black orchestral institution was actually founded, though, in Winston-Salem back in 1993 by a woman named Armenta Hummings-Dumasani. I'm just gonna read a little from her Wikipedia. It says here, Armenta, born in 1936, is a concert pianist and music educator who, since 1960, has performed in the United States. And thanks to an International Relations Award from the United States Department uh, in 27 other countries as well. Uh, In 1993, she founded the Gateway's Music Festival, which promotes the achievements of Afro-American classical musicians. Um, Armenta is a former associate professor of music at the Eastman School of Music in Rochester. And in 1994, she was appointed Eastman's Distinguished Community Mentor. I had the honor of meeting our mentor some years ago when I played with the Gateways Music Festival Orchestra. Um, You know, we talk a lot about the mainstream freedom fighters of decades past during Black History Month, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, all those folks. But we got to remember that uh, black women and men and individuals were also fighting this good fight back then, you know, when it comes to uh, this, this classical music so-called thing. So uh, you can learn more about Armenta and the Gateways Music Festival at gatewaysmusicfestival.org. A huge shout out to Armenta Hummings Dumasani, a really key figure in Black history here in the United States. You know, this is Triloquy, so <laughs> I'm going to stick with the flavor of this show and uh, remind y'all of the violinists who performed at the inaugural Gateways Music Festival down there in North Carolina. It was, yes, you guessed it, the Honorable Louis Farrakhan. He is a violinist whose contributions to our efforts helped build what we have today in the world of classical music for Black folk. Now, I'm I'm gonna play a little bit of uh, <laughs> his performance, but before I play it, I just want to remind everyone that we do a great job of separating art from artists when it comes to certain composers from certain parts of the world of certain hues, right? I'm not placing any value judgments or invalidating anyone's feelings or lived experiences around this man as a queer person. There's a lot that I could say about, you know, the way in which he's engaged folks like me. I'm just inviting y'all to measure Farrakhan in this single specific instance with the same ruler. We've been forced to measure Wagner, Orff, Granger, and countless others from the so-called canon, okay? So this clip of Farrakhan's take on the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto will transition us into my conversation with Brian Cole, once again, who's the chancellor of the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. They recently revamped their entire systems with a strategic plan that includes a focus on recordings of the students and faculty, uh, professional development, and really preparing the students in a real way for the field ahead of them after they graduate so huge thanks to brian cole for chatting with me and huge thanks to y'all for listening see y'all on the other side
1: chancellor of the university um you know giving leadership to the whole enterprise in terms of we have five conservatories of you know music drama dance design and production and filmmaking and you know what what i want for all of our artists certainly is you know i want to foster creativity and i want you know to people to develop you know all the different kinds of creative directions they want to go in but I also want them to be employed. <laughs> you know, the, the the definition of employment is is something that has evolved uh, quite a bit over the last several decades as well. Um, you know, so I want to make sure it, we put that as a part of our strategic plan in terms of industry relevance. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we, we want to be this amazing hub and ecosystem of the arts that's generating, you know, the next decades and century of of artists and and creativity. But we also want that to translate into you know, people being able to live and gain full employment and support um, the kind of creative lives I want to live. So I think the key to that is um, you don't have to constantly be reaction in reaction to the industry, but you have to always stay connected to it. So I want to make sure you know that our programs, whether it's in music or drama or film or anything else, that they are very connected to the industry which our students are about to enter, whether they're leaving here after a high school or undergraduate or graduate program. Um, I, th- I think that's a mindset that if we constantly have that as a value, then there's a greater chance of happening. Um, and, and you know, that has a lot to do with the kind of faculty that that we recruit and and that are and the values that they instill to students. And making sure that the degrees we have and the classes we have that they have a direct correlation to the kinds of things that's the operate the kinds of opportunities that students are going to have some of those are you know jobs that are actually you know with companies or with organizations but uh, so many more of the opportunities for artists nowadays are in this other realm where they are the business themselves you know where they they are the product you know they people talk about it all the time as a portfolio career which i think is kind of a buzzword nowadays but i mean mm-hmm. it very much it the skills that you need to essentially put yourself in the center um you know even even if even if a a young clarinetist has the goal that a very traditional goal like i want to be the principal clarinetist of the new york philharmonic great that's a that's a fantastic goal um, but even somebody who achieves that goal that is not uh you know if you think about a portfolio like an investment that is not their only investment that may be the largest percentage of of where they direct their time and interest but they're still doing quite a few other things they're still mm-hmm. writing and teaching and producing and any number of of other things uh, for most artists that balance that that those percentages are much more balanced 50-50 60-40 I mean, or or divided up between all kinds of different Ca- careers and activities. So part of it is making sure that students know what kind of skills are out there, that they have access to as many of them during their formative years as they can. And I think just as importantly, have a mindset to be aw- an awareness uh, of the environment they're going into. But it, it, all, it all for me just speaks back to uh, making industry relevance uh, uh, a priority.
0: And when I think about the professional ecosystem, generally speaking, I can't help but to think about your entry into your role during 2020. I'm sure it was very uh, atypical, maybe not a huge congratulatory party, you know, because we were all uh, you know, socially and physically distancing. But I wonder if there's anything significant uh that you learned uh considering that you went into your role under circumstances that the industry had never seen before, literally.
1: Yeah. It was a really difficult time. I mean, and I don't mean for me specifically, but for all of us. Uh, I mean, all of us at UNCSA, all of us everywhere. It was it was such a challenging time that couldn't have wouldn't have imagined even you know a month or two before that. Um, yeah, and to, to your point about the the moment I became chancellor. Yeah, it was a it was a virtual Zoom meeting, uh, <laughs> with the UNC Board of Governors. <laughs> it wasn't. It, it was definitely kind of. It was like all of our interactions around that time or, or a large percentage of our interactions with people virtual, uh, that, you know, the thing I take away from that time, when I look back on it, uh, and even kind of realized as we were going through it, as we started to make progress, I just realized how much more we were capable of, mm-hmm. um, you know, there the things that, you know, and I have to give so much amazing credit to our faculty, for the the things that we had to do to deliver the training for our students to, um to, to 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 achieve basically the same kind of outcomes which is gosh so difficult in the arts um uh kind of on a side note i remember when we were having we would have these weekly um virtual meetings uh, at the system unc system level with other chancellors and officials of the system talking about the the protocols that we would need to have in place to be able to to, you know to keep your institutions open uh, in a hybrid fashion as much as in person as possible and i remember when we were talking about the kind of things we'd have to do um i would hear uh, other chancellors talk about the, the the protocols they need to put in place for athletics for you know football and basketball and wrestling and things like that and when it came time to really talk about school of the arts i said well the things that you need to do for athletes That's what that's what that's the kind of resources we need. I said Mm -hmm. because arts is so interactive um, and it it is so predicated on kind of being around each other. So I say that just as a preface to saying, you know, if you'd asked me and most of the people on our campus um, six months before we had to do this enormous pivot, if we could do, I mean, even you know, 10% of our training online, we would have said absolutely not. Mm-hmm. No way. Impossible. Uh yet we did that. And uh that is just a small example of the kind of things we were able to do. I mean, uh I, I remember I mean, we had we actually had live theater going on in October of 2020. Um, we had dance instruction going on with our studios g- mapped out in grids and 10-foot spaces and uh special masks for students. I mean, we were able to do 80% of our classes at UNCSA in the arts were still in person uh and we you know so the the theater example i was talking about the we had we had live theater it was a devised theater presentation that we have a program in now where they're generating you know theater from from zero with no script um and you know, collaboratively creating new production so what we ended up doing is with this brand new piece we rented out the courtyard of a hotel nearby that had hotel rooms all around it, multiple stories. And we rented every single one of the, of the hotel rooms. There was essentially big, you know, it's old tobacco factories, big glass mm-hmm. windows. And there was an actor inside each room, completely isolated. And our design and production school and those teams created directional audio from each of those rooms and they lit the courtyard and the audience was in the courtyard, all social existence and masked. And this brand new piece that showed the isolation of artists but also the interaction, you know, through the use of technology, created live theater in a time where you know, most people wouldn't go to the grocery store. Um, it was pretty incredible. So, you know, that's when I say what I took, what I take away from that is there's always so many obstacles in our lives for the things that we want to achieve. That time had more limiting factors and more obstacles than any other that we've encountered, and we persevered as an institution and as a community and the things that we were able to still be able to achieve in the arts were incredible. So I take from that, and I, I, I that I, that was the big lesson I learned. And so anytime we have these opportunities or challenges, we need to remind ourselves what we're able to achieve. And there is usually a whole other level of of what we could do in most situations um, that I think now we realize. Uh, that's probably a really important lesson for the all of higher education and all of the arts and entertainment industry um, but that's, that's, that's one I think about still pretty regularly.
0: I want to pull on that thread of possibilities and perceived obstacles as it relates to you. I, I, I really was excited to see that uh, you had studied bassoon. It's always great to dialogue with a fellow bassoonist. You've also studied conducting. Many people would not think it's possible with that educational background to land in a position like yours. So what, what, what is what filling is in the middle between your musical and performance training and the skills that you need to be the chancellor of a conservatory?
1: Well, it was a really, it was actually a pretty organic progression. Um, you know, just studying music and it all it all started from you know being an introductory musician to to where i sit today talking to you i can see that path really clearly and with any number of steps in that in that um in that journey if they take it away i'm not sitting here um and not in this in this opportunity um you know i i started playing the bassoon because there weren't a lot of bassoonists uh in in the high school band and uh so that gave me by doing that, I had, you know, as you as you, I'm sure know from your experience as a bassoonist, I had three or four times more opportunities to do things quicker because oh, yeah. there were people trying to do it. And so I think that is a big reason why I studied music in the first place because I, or if I hadn't had those opportunities, I probably wouldn't have studied music in college. It exposed me to to a bigger picture of things. um when i I loved playing an orchestra when I got uh, and being around people and being around this huge, you know process and this, community, essentially, that is what I feel in orchestras. Um, yeah, I naturally wanted to be involved as involved with that as possible, which led me to just uh, pursue conducting and then, you know, and then graduate study in my professional career before administration was in conducting. And so, you know, from there to where I am today was a series of opportunities, just like just like that one where somebody asked me if I'd like to start playing the bassoon. Uh, and I was a I was a conductor. Um, like mostly uh, a kind of itinerant guest conductor. That's part of my career right around the time I moved to Puerto Rico. And I was asked by the chancellor of the Puerto Rican Survey at that time, I was doing some part-time teaching. And she asked me, she said, you know, we've had difficulty filling this associate dean role. Um, well, we, we think you would be really good at it. And I said, wow, I've never really, never really thought of that. Um, and I think I initially said no because, you know, it wasn't what I was planning on, but she told me, she said, you know, um, give it, us give it some thought. I promise you that uh, that this opportunity here will bring you closer to music and closer to the art, not farther away from it behind the desk. And so I ended up saying yes. Uh, and she was right. But you know what that allowed me to do is it put me in the position to have a bigger view mm. of, of the arts, have a bigger view of education, have, to have just to have a higher level view and giving people the opportunity to do that, we will all learn so many things. and we're if we're if we're we're up to the task so many more times than we think. But so much of it is giving people the opportunity to just to, to look over and see that larger picture. And so uh, you know I was I was fortunate to be given those opportunities along the way. And I feel like you know your your question about you know preparing for this role, I think that this the skill set of being a conductor, is very, very similar to being a dean or being chancellor mm. um, in, art, in the arts specifically, because um, it helps to be an artist, but you don't have to be. But the the understanding of, of that realm and the heart of, you know, what we do in the first place, it certainly is very helpful. But, you know, if you think about what a conductor does, most people think that, you know, 90% of it is being on the podium. It's probably more like 15, 20% of it, because so much more of it is managing people of, you know, leadership values like having a vision and getting people to buy into that vision and to go forward with you. Um, like I said, being a manager, being a psychologist, being a business person, um, being a spokesperson, you know, all of these things. But if you, if you break that down into those components, that is the job, you know, of a, of a Dean that is definitely the job of a chancellor, but each one of those steps up higher, higher up the ladder, um, and the, the greater responsibility that comes along with that and accountability enables or puts me in a position where I can see from a higher uh from a higher altitude. I can see the bigger picture. And so um I feel like it's been really organic, you know. And uh I don't think you have to be an artist to be in my position. Um, but I think it certainly helps. And and not just in an arts institution, i I'm, I'm firmly believe that the the training that we get that you and I both have and and, I, and my students your students um, in the, in the arts is so the skill set is so transferable mm-hmm. um, I firmly believe that and I see our students and our artists and um, and their colleagues around the country achieve so many things I see more and more businesses out there going actively recruiting people from the creative arts certainly from the liberal arts um, because we're capacitated to do so many incredible things because of this transferable skill set. I mean, artists essentially often—it's the ultimate uh, creative problem solver because uh, artists often are essentially it's part of our job to create something out of nothing, mm-hmm. uh, to create order out of chaos. You know, to sound a little more biblical, but um, <laughs> but uh, but you know that that is something to be able to see what isn't on the page and come up with a solution. That is inherently what artists do all the time on small and large scale. So, um, you know, it gets back to your original question about uh, uh, about careers and trajectories. I think if, if we embrace that um, and, and we reinforce that and we celebrate that, um, then all of a sudden it doesn't mean you can't go in some very traditional pathways in, 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 in your career. But it, the pressure is off because there there are actually so many more possibilities when you really open the open your perspective about that. And so, um, that's definitely provided a lot of gifts for me and uh, opportunities for me. And I, I want I want those same kind of doors opened um, uh, for for all of our students that we currently have and those that are you know they're going to be here in the future years.
0: Yeah, that's really phenomenal to to hear. And, you know, I was really excited to read and learn about the strategic plan that you've put in place for UNCSA. I think a lot of people who don't work in arts administration can hear that phrase strategic plan and sort of, you know, have eyes that glaze over. But, you know, the way that you have contextualized it uh, feels really exciting to me. And I kind of want to go through, you know, a a lot of the points that you put forward in your strategic plan, starting with institutional stability. So when I hear that phrase, and I know that when many people hear that phrase, they assume financial cuts, they assume, you know, we aren't giving out as many scholarships, we're cutting back programming. What's your approach to this idea of institutional stability as it relates to this large strategic plan you've put in place?
1: Sure. Well, actually, the way we have it articulated in our plan is close to what its institutional sustainability. Oh, That's, but the stability is kind of the inherent like today of that. So it's certainly a component of it, The you know, and it's a very valid question nowadays because you see a lot of in higher education, um, certainly in private institutions, but in, in a lot of public institutions. Now you see some pretty dramatic cuts, cuts in programming, cuts in personnel, um, you know, responding to some pretty dramatic Enrollment challenges, uh, you know that that they have been predicted in this country for a long time. Um, but the way th- we UNCSA thankfully has not yet been in, in a situation like that. I mean, everybody has seen kind of enrollment go up and down. Um, but for for what what our goal is with that focus in the strategic plan of institutional sustainability is, what are the things that we need to kind of really shore up to make sure that we don't get into that situation. You know, mm-hmm. when we talk about uh personnel and making sure that we solve some problems that we've had historically over many years with compensation to make sure that we that we r- recruit but retain the really amazing people we have on our team, our faculty, our staff. Um enrollment sustainability, making sure that we have um that we're Channeling not just everybody wants to raise funds for scholarships, but we're we're raising the amount of dollars we're needing and putting it in the right places and, and giving access and opportunity to as many people as we can, um, you know, facilities sustainability and making sure that you know that we modernize what we have so so not just not just so that it doesn't fall down, but be, but that it also it is the resources that they are the resources we need to have in place so that the students are coming here, are working in the state of the art tools and state of the art spaces that are analogous to the opportunities you know that's a smooth transition from mm-hmm. studying to working um that there's no transition ideally that it's that you're already working in this kind of professional environment and it's a seamless transition into the professional world you know so and then you know fiscal sustainability making sure that we are using our resources our current resources to the greatest uh efficiency that we can so that we can build on this thing so i i take the approach we take the approach that we're trying to do to look at all those things to make sure that we are not in a situation in the future where we have to do that. And we're making with every one of those four things in the past two years, we've made some really substantial progress. I'm that I'm really optimistic for us to be able to achieve the goals we put in that that plan.
0: And it's not just the internal conversations that are represented in this strategic plan, but external as well, especially when you talk about industry relevance. When I Mm -hmm. hear industry relevance, I think about the fact that, you know, there are so many concerts these days that... I won't even spend the time or money to engage and I have the training in 10 years in the orchestral field, you know, much less people who have no organic connection. With 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 that idea in mind specifically, how do you respond to this idea of uh, industry relevance as it relates to the strategic plan?
1: Well... You know, building on I, I talked a little bit about that in the first question. I kind of put it into that. Building on those things I said there. I mean, like so part of it is making sure, as I said earlier, that to that we are connected, that the programs we're doing, the opportunities, the work that's happening here is is a direct relationship and connection to to the real world, we'll say, you know, to the mm-hmm. to the opportunities that students have today and the opportunities you know the the Wayne Gretzky quote like skating to where the puck's going to be you know uh, though it's 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 an awareness of that so that we are being as proactive and ahead of the curve as we can be as opposed to just kind of waiting to see you know what the demand is for like how much can we foresee what the demand is going to be um and then you know and then another aspect of maybe three aspects I can think of with this would be kind of what I was building on with the skills students are going to need mm-hmm. um uh, a big aspect of that is um, what you mentioned, earlier, uh, you know, about UNCSA Media and the publishing arm. Is you know these are the kind of skills, the the opportunities um, that students have to leverage what they do in a different way, and you know, building structures to help the ecosystem when they get out of here. But then also the experiential learning that happens with that. Um, and then you know there's examples of industry relevance uh within the the different individual industries you know that we train for in the school i i I'm thinking about a, a really amazing drama production that we had recently that was um uh the School of Drama and school of Design production produced a musical this semester that was the as you Like it, which is the adaptation oh, yeah. of uh Shakespeare's play. Mm-hmm it's fantastic you know it was it was modeled after the public the, uh, it was d- debuted in public theater in, in in New York um and the whole the whole nature of this presentation you know we have all of our actors uh, and designers and they in an incredibly high level um producing this great work of art but the nature of this this production is that it also involves uh an even larger number of community cast members. We had students, uh, we had uh, kids through adults, like ages, you know, elementary school through uh, some retired members of our community. Wow. An incredibly diverse pool of people that were members of the cast. So there was this unbelievable community engagement in that piece. And that is not just, you know, people will say, oh, we need to have more community engagement or outreach. That's a part of it. But what that was is how many of, you know, there's a big, really, uh, there's a really terrible situation in our country right now in the theater industry where you're seeing some of the biggest public theaters, regional theaters in our uh, our country, not just scaling back, but some of the largest in our country closing. Uh, And so there's all kinds of challenges built up in that. But the relevance to our society, relevance to our audiences and our public, connecting to that public in a different way just like in a work like this um that is not only important to our community that is really important to the future of the theater industry and its relevance um specs especially in you know what makes up m- most of the theater um you know by the population in the country broadway is not going anywhere right. um there, you know and that's great that's a super important thing um and there, for actors, there are lots and lots of expanding opportunities on on screen, not, not just on stage. Um, but to really, this is this is a way to to establish a whole other kind of relevance and connection to our community. So so there's another example there, and and you would see some some other very specific examples if you went through each of the different industries in terms of how can we how what is relevant to the industry today, and how can we connect our students and their experience to that, you know, right now.
0: And when you talk about the uh, diverse cast that was centered, you know, I, I can't help but to think about the buzzword that diversity has become. You know, even with um, equity, diversity, uh, inclusion, belonging being a part of the strategic plan that you've put uh, into place. You know, this is a conversation that is happening in many ways, and something that came to mind for me was UNCSA's physical proximity uh, to the uh, the affirmative action decision. That was made, um, you know, regarding you know those sorts of initiatives. I wonder, you know, what are some of the conversations that you've had internally about how to move that work forward of diversity and equity without it being just an initiative that's on paper or a buzzword for the sake of a funding conversation or something along those lines?
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, well, you know, of those four letters, EDIB—equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging. For me, and I think for our community, I can speak for our community. The most important of those four is the last one: is the B, belonging. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we want to be a campus where every single person on this campus feels and uh, integrally that they are they are part of this campus, that they belong on this campus. So those other elements that are that are just that are just as important: equity throughout our population, having a diverse population of artists. That's just an incredibly that's that's critical to you know having lots of different voices at the table to what creates good art in the first place, to to hearing all the different possibilities and all the different voice and perspectives. Um and you know, inclusion goes along exactly with that. But if we if the the B is the most important because if we achieve that, that means that we've done a good job on everything else. Is it you know that the result, the out, the outcome uh that we're all looking for is that everybody feels like they belong here Mm -hmm. um so uh i think i think if everybody thinks about that way it's it's pretty hard not to get get behind that um who who doesn't want um everybody to feel like they belong in in the in the community they're in um as far as the affirmative action decision it didn't really affect UNCSA um because the nature as a as as it as much as it did um you know, for example, other institutions within the UNC system, right. um, they're all comprehensive institutions and universities, the nature of being a conservatory in that, uh, it's all based on audition. Um, you know, so it didn't really change any of our process. Uh, I mean, every institution in the country is, you know, uh, very conscious and, and, and making sure that we understand any policy that comes down federally or, or or from the state. Um, It hasn't really changed uh, the way we've had to approach things here. Um, um, And we're, I think we're making, we're making really good progress in this area too.
0: The reality is a person can't, be a senior in high school and decide that they want to major in bassoon, for example. There's a runway that is is required, and UNCSA has the unique opportunity to also engage high schoolers as part of its yeah. uh, as part of its programming. Is there a runway up to being a high school student at UNCSA that uh that your organization engages? What does that part of the conversation look like? Again, thinking about uh diversity and not just you know, wanting X amount of diverse students, but also yeah. thinking about what it takes to get them to even be able to apply, to even be competitive enough to join, to, to be a student at, uh, at that institution? Yeah, that's a great question.
1: Um, first of all, I, our high school is such a cool thing. Um, I think it's, it's you could argue, it's maybe our most important uh, product, you know, or the most important opportunity we provide. Certainly one that uh, sets us apart instantly from any other institution Mm sets you and csa apart the fact that we have this university um this high level conservatory environment that also has a residential high school program so so that in itself is fantastic but you know uh like you said you can't just decide as a high school senior that you want to pursue bassoon because there's a runway there's there's a certain amount of training to get to a certain point and that that is the case with uh some disciplines more than others uh, well definitely with music and dance mm-hmm. to some degree like they're there are kids who have been pursuing the uh, music or dance for anywhere from three to eight years maybe before they're even applying to our high school program i mean some ki- you know some families are starting this really early and and so but there are other areas where that's not the case um there are kids who absolutely could decide you know because of the skills they've generated that I want to go into acting. I want to have that experience. I want to go into filmmaking. I want to go into design and production, um, which has, you know, 15 different areas you could go in. And that all speaks to just kind of areas of interest that, that a conservatory environment can quickly focus into some really meaningful career trajectories. But to your point, whether, whether it is, uh, it all comes down to access. And so whether we're giving access earlier and exposing people to the fact that these opportunities exist so that they at an earlier age can pursue music and dance and also trying to narrow the gap of how many years it really takes to be ready you know to be honest mm-hmm. about what you really need to where you need to be to get in but you know think about you know uh, example i think about all the time with design and production um they have this really amazing show they do every year it's called fotana which mm-hmm. is uh which is that all the lighting design students create this really amazing, uh, show with, you know, light and music and sound. And it's, and it's just this huge, you know, festival for the eyes and the ears uh, that any, any young kid, if they saw that would be like, wow, I want to do that. Um, I, or, or they'll ask themselves, I can do that. Like I can do that for a career. Mm -hmm. Um, that's just one example of any other number of areas where, um, just have to be able to imagine themselves uh in that space and be able to to be invited to to kind of get permission to th- to imagine themselves in that space to and then certainly to, to to realize that you know this place is an opportunity and you could be here. and that comes down to exposure comes down to like I mean certainly access has elements of you know f- financial obstacles, but it also has it comes down to just being there, and putting something an opportunity in front of you and somebody saying look at this look how look how great this is you could do that and you could actually do this for the rest of your life uh, and these are the doors it opens so um you know that applies that applies certainly to our high school um you know in terms of there there, there are a lot of meaningful opportunities in the arts that we've been talking about but if people don't hear about them earlier if we don't put them in front of them and, and allow people to young kids to imagine themselves in those spaces, um, whether it's going to take, you know, two to five years of training to be ready for it. Or if it's, or if it's not, i really going to take any training. It's going to be a matter of like, you're a really smart person who has a, a drive and a, and a will to explore something. You can come do this two-year high school program. Some of our high school programs are, you know, nine through 12th grade. Some of them are just 11th and 12th. And there's one that's only 12th grade. Hmm. Um, but it, you know, it comes down to all these different dynamics of access. That was a really long-winded answer to your question.
0: I, I, I loved it. And you know, when you talk about access and exposure, I'm thinking about how much uh, you're exposing to the world to all of UNCSA's really great work through uh, UNCSA Media, which you've mentioned a, a couple of times. I wonder if you can uh, speak a little bit to what had to be developed for this initiative to uh, come to fruition. Many conservatories you know, record their concerts and do those sorts of things. But what are the extra steps that it took for you to really solidify UNCSA Media as a major initiative of the conservatory?
1: I'm sure. It's what I'm really excited about. It's definitely kind of a passion project for me. Um, and we launched it in October. Uh, oh, actually, no, end of September. Uh, but it's something we've been, wor- we've been working on for several years. Actually, we're ready. We're ready to launch the first phase of it in May of 2020, and something happened that month. <laughs> yeah, something uh, did yeah. happen. <laughs> so, so, uh, so we had to, so we had to delay that. But it actually gave us a chance to really step back to the core values of what we we're trying to do in the first place. And what I want to say is that, and in, in inherently, what you and CSA Media is, is an IP strategy. Hmm. It's an intellectual property strategy. It's manifesting itself in this first phase as a record label. But what it is is that's just kind of the easy first step for it. It is a media publishing arm for this UNCSA, for UNCSA or for our ecosystem of artists. And the goal is to build the, the importance of intellectual property, the value of it, and the and the importance of how artists should own their intellectual property and control it, to put that in the center of the educational process, to put that in the in the center of the of uh, uh, the perspective of young artists. So uh there's a lot, you know, if you think about it just in terms of musical terms, it's the, the maybe the example that people are most uh, acquainted with. Um, there are lots there's lots of th- there are challenges for musicians to to make money nowadays and monetize recorded music or a lot of the different kinds of music that we that we publish that we put out there. Um, because an, an usually, uh, m- very often, in order to put that music out there um, with record labels with other publishing entities, we are forced to, or feel like we're forced to uh, sign away the rights to that material. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's transactional. I get it. And it's, it's, it's there, it's not, you know, the one evil monolith versus, you know, all the other artists is it's a a nuanced thing, but more often than not, it is uh, the art, what the artist creates, they are not able to leverage its value. It's other people that leverage that value over them. So what we want to do is, is put that at the center and, Create this media. We're creating this media publishing arm for the artists of our ecosystem, so that essentially it's a non-profit, mission-driven publishing entity that starts out with music, but uh, very quickly in the next couple of years, it's going to include film and video. It's going to include uh, choreography. It's going to include printed materials, uh, books that people in our ecosystem are writing. To, you know, w- within our artistic disciplines. Um, there's even discussion about how patents could be involved mm-hmm. in this. We have a lot of designers in, uh, in, and okay. in, 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 we have a new animatronics program that's creating all kinds of new um, new things that could be patented. But it's all intellectual property. So we, want, we can essentially help the artists of our ecosystem really predominantly, especially initially focused on our alumni and our faculty, people who've kind of got to the point where they're ready. They've been out enough to kind of generate some projects that are ready for this, where we can... They can bring those projects to you CSA Media. We can put them out there. We can help leverage our institutional resources, our networks to publish and communicate those. But we don't have to leverage the ownership of it. Our artists, for example, with this record label initiative that was the first phase of it, they own the masters, they own the, the publishing rights, they own, they own the um the content, you know, and you know, any kind of Residuals that have to come into it just go right back into the label to to to, to the media publishing room to just to produce the next product. So that same model uh, we can only do with the artists of our ecosystem because it is an ecosystem mm-hmm. um, and and it's mission driven as opposed to profit driven for us. Uh, I'm very optimistic that over time it will actually be self-sustainable because we can really scale these things up quite a bit to make that happen. Um, but but that's real like so. Independent of the type of media, music or film or video, it's really just the first part of the what is a, a part that has a much more important aspect to it, which is really want this to turn into a, a clearinghouse mm-hmm. for artists to hold and then help us help them uh, for us to help them license and sell that material as well, uh, not just publish. so that that's the long game is to create that. And there's all kinds of applications on the back end of how that will work in the future. That you know, you hear a lot of talk today about, in, in you know, these terms of monetization and you know, blockchain and, and systems of tracking ownership and things like that. There's all kinds of dynamics to that, but we, you know, that we will get into. But we really want to start at the core kernel of this, which is the value of intellectual property and the value for our artists. To own it and leverage it so we want to help that happen and just build these concentric circles of opportunity in this mission-driven um uh, media publishing arm to help our artists further their careers to help them leverage what they are creating and not somebody else leverage it
0: yeah and i really appreciated seeing this album windows that's under this project uh loved seeing all of the familiar uh composers listed none of which were Beethoven or Brahms or any of those no. folks, which I have really, really appreciated. But to your point about teaching the importance of intellectual property, when you talk about um, when you have to engage the conversation of residuals and those things and, you know, uh, pushing that back to the artists, who are those artists? Are we specifically talking about the composers? Do the students have a, a fiscal um, benefit to, you know, being involved?
1: What does that look like? Well, it really depends on the project. So you know, the the first project that we put out, the Windows project was a more, it was an institutionally produced project. So mm-hmm. our, our Dean of the School of Music, Saxton Rose, conceived the idea for that album, You know, connected with those composers, recorded it. It was recorded by um, an alum of our school, Bill Stevens, who's a really talented uh, engineer that owns the largest studio here in Winston-Salem. Um, and so that as an institutionally project w- was more to promote the, you know, certainly those composers and the music, but also the, the faculty before it was all faculty that were recording that project. So that one doesn't have the same dynamics as kind of the long-term vision of the, the industry, because that, that's kind of a, it's a one-off institutionally self-produced thing. Most often what's going to happen is that an alumnus, faculty member brings a project that they have realized and they've recorded and they're going to bring it to us mm. and then we're going to publish it for them. So the, the what where, where there, if there are residuals and where they go really depends on the project. Cause it could be, for example, could be a solo cellist that comes right. in and has, and has a recording, and that's a very easy negotiation. Uh, it could be something where that person is the performer and the composer or the songwriter, and essentially everything is going to them. Or it could be something more complex where there are, there are other kinds of rights and royalties at play, you know, whether you know, a, a, a composer that was commissioned, uh a small orchestra that was that was uh that was used to record the piece or or a band or any number of things. So um it's we're setting up some some models right now for how those would most often work but it'll really often come down to the nature of the project. But the the one that we just did like I said windows was you know kind of an institutionally produced uh project. And we'll do those every now and then but I would say you know 70% of the t- 75% or more of the time it's going to be these self-produced projects that people bring to us. And then we publish, and and ready to go. As opposed to us, you know, conceiving the project and bringing the entities in and producing it ourselves.
0: Okay. Okay. And uh, a special shout out to someone you mentioned, Dean Saxton Rose Bassoonis. We're out here doing big things in the world. That's right. <laughs> uh, so uh, power. Yeah. <laughs> so, what advice uh, would you give to? parents or, you know, even potential students who are looking to, you know, join the UNCSA family? What do they need to uh, come prepared with beyond, you know, their skills that are in place? Are there other things that they need to think about considering the direction that you're moving the school in?
1: Um, Well, I mean, it's an amazing place. Uh, And of course, you're going to expect me to say that, but uh, I i say that in honesty i've never seen a place like this because of the makeup of it because we have a high school and a university and and a graduate school program and because it's all five of these arts conservatories in this 74 acres of land you know all happening very collaboratively um it, it really is this ecosystem i used that word earlier i i think so so knowing what you're coming into like this is a space to really do some, some amazing creative things. Um, But it's a really intense place. It's a, it is, it's a conservatory environment. So the, the, the balance of time that you spend on doing art is much higher than you're going to have the hours that you spend, the percentage of hours you're going to spend as a music or a drama major at a, at a comprehensive university. It's just Mm -hmm. greater. It's kind of the nature of it. And they're really good. They're really great things about that conservatory model and there's some things that are challenging that you know that we're continually trying to evolve to be a conservatory of this you know this and the next century but the to answer your question though is is really knowing what you're coming into it's uh and you can think about it as our students spend an extraordinary amount of time uh you know hours and hours and hours in their art studio or in the rehearsal room but it's kind of like a lot of high school kids if you, you think about uh You think about uh, the amount of time they spend in class in their high school, and then you add up all the other time they spend in a variety of extracurricular activities, maybe doing sports, maybe doing scouts or some kind of club or any number of or art or music classes or um, you just take all that all that extracurricular time that most kids are using. You just focus it into one. It's a very focused thing, which is that art study that happens here. So um, it's intense the students that come here really understanding that and and parents ready for that, uh, they, ex, they excel very quickly. Um, when, and we, and we try to do a very good job of, of, of explaining, you know, preparing people for what that environment is like. Um, but when somebody has expectations for something else, it can be really challenging and it might not be what a family wants. Um, uh, there's, I mean, it's an enormously supportive environment. We've been building out our student support structures, particularly over the last two and three years, and making it's it's an amazing team of people at the high school and the college level that we're it's you know consistently and constantly trying to to make even greater resources. So so it's a very supportive uh, infrastructure, however, but it is it is very intense. So um, the students come here typically, you know, not trying to figure out what they want to do kind of have a pretty good idea and hit the ground running. Um, and we want to support them in doing it. But I would say, you know, that's the biggest advice is, uh, and, and does it doesn't mean particularly at the high school level that every child, uh, student who comes here has to go into the professional arts uh, plenty uh, have great success at the high school level and, and go into any number of things. Um, but you have to be here wanting that immersive kind of intensive experience. Um, It can apply to lots of different things, but it is going to be that. Um, But that's why, you know, our students go out and do some really amazing things, Um, particularly our high school students. Uh, You know, they come in and they have this this really uh, broad experience that essentially in a lot of ways from a curricular and a time management standpoint an artistic development standpoint is a lot like what a lot of kids have achieved through four years of college. So a lot of our high school students finish this, whether it's, you know, one, four to even one year of the program, and then they transition into college and it's not a really big transition because that, that environment that most kids have to really, you know, get used to when they go into college, a lot of our high school students are like, well, I've already done that. You know, so they are ready to go and they are farther ahead than many of their, uh, their future colleagues when they, when they do go to college, if they do choose to. Um, so they, they achieve some great things because of that experience that they have here. And just this long, long list, impressive list of alums that we're very proud of that just, that are examples of that. So that's, that's, that's what I would share with prospective parents and students.
0: Sure. Well, I, I want to wrap us up by uh, circling back around to you know one of the earlier parts of our conversation when we think about all of the folks out here with you know bachelor's, master's degrees, even uh, Dmas, and still don't quite have that job. One one of the um, things that I try to preach uh, in this stage of my life is that arts admin is not something that you can just fall back into I almost consider it something that you graduate into but with that being said is there any advice that you could give to early career arts professionals who may see the reality of being as you mentioned the principal clarinet of the New York Philharmonic not maybe something that is going to happen in this lifetime but you know other building bridges to other possibilities that are equally impactful to arts ecosystems how where where should they start or, or what are the skills they need to think about cultivating?
1: Well, I think often it's certainly been in my experience, people have a lot more. People in so many cases have the skills to be successful in these leadership roles um, that they maybe just don't realize. Hmm. And, and and you know, I I see it as a responsibility for me as I'm you know as, as I'm bringing in people to my team or or as we're bringing in people to UNCSA's team to try to recognize that and give people opportunities. Not everybody not everybody is going to be exactly ready for every single one of these opportunities and I'll be honest I wasn't completely ready for it when I was given them you know when I got my first administrative role and I I learned a ton in a very quick in a very short amount of time um so you know you have people have more skills than they realize um and tech, particularly those like I said earlier that they that, that grew up and have this creative arts training experience like the skill set is so transferable um but along the way what i would say is you know you have to just be open to the possibilities you know like when i gave that example of being offered that opportunity as an associate dean uh my first inclination was well no that's interesting but that's not for me because i i'm focused on this mm-hmm. um and uh i kind of i kind of had to step back and and say well you know i'll try this and be open to a different path and that path ended up being you know everything um, I didn't, had no idea at the time that that was the case. So there are, you know, and not everything is going to be an opportunity, you know, like to immediately go into a leadership position like that, but there are lots of other opportunities to, to expand our vision and horizon, you know, horizons about being a part of something that leads places that we don't necessarily recognize at first. So I think a lot of leadership is that is like, if I think back to you know, getting into conducting in the first place. I I loved playing orchestra. I wanted to be as involved in it as possible. So I was looking for ways to be as involved in the in that experience as I could. And eventually, that led to conducting. But there's lots of ways to be involved in all the different things that we do, and to to you know to zoom out to to be to put yourself in a position where you can as much as possible zoom out and take in the context of everything. And, and understand like how that fits into the larger picture, how these things that we do, how, how that, you know, sitting and playing the bassoon part in an orchestra, what that, this is another transferable skill, listening to what that means and how it affects uh, all the other people you're playing with, how that impacts the sound to the audience, you know, that one, that one little piece of the puzzle affects everything. So once I, as a conductor was able to step back and then see that piece within the whole that made me a better musician. When I was able to to step into administrative positions and see the entirety of the academic and artistic enterprise in a, in a larger picture, that that taught me something and that made me a better maybe a better musician and artist. It certainly made me a better leader um, uh, and a, a ability to serve the institution in a different way. And the 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 more of those opportunities I get and I grow into this more and more every single day. Um, but I'm trying. I'm constantly reminding myself to. To, to make myself zoom out and see the larger picture, So there's no time like the present for anybody to start doing that. Um, and that is a really great path, a mindset to put yourself on a path to leadership roles, administrative roles. Um, and artists have the skills to do that. It's just, so it's mindset and opportunity. Mm-hmm.
0: Music there by Jesse Montgomery from the Windows album produced by the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. That's the Presto movement from Jesse's duo for violin and cello. Congrats to Jesse on all of her successes. I'll actually be working with her in April with the Illinois Philharmonic. So I'm looking forward to being with her on the ground. And of course, shout out and thanks to Brian Cole for all of the work he's doing over at UNCSA and for coming on the show to talk about it. Bravi. All right. uh, So my Triloquy this week is inspired by my latest trip to the Sphinx Conference. So I've been attending the Sphinx Conference for over a decade now. I was trying to count. I may be mistaken, but I think uh, this past weekend was my 12th conference. If you don't know what the Sphinx Conference is, uh, visit sphinxmusic.org. Really one of the Uh, The key institutions, if not the key institution when it comes to diversity uh, in classical music, diversity in the arts. Uh, When I was first attending the conference years ago, it was was primarily as a musician. I played in the orchestra, played uh, for the competition, you know, family reunion vibes with all the black musicians. It was great. And then uh, as my profile as a a speaker and a media producer uh, continued to grow, I ended up uh, getting on the speaking stage more often than not. So leading panels, participating in panels, doing all that sort of thing. Well, this year for me was even different because I was really there to, you know, I kind of hate that word networking, but really just there to collaborate with other um, artistic directors, CEOs, people with positions uh, like mine, uh, equity-focused positions, uh, to see what we can build for composers and for uh, composer advancement, so really, Uh, great conversations and collaborations coming down the line with some really great orchestras across the country. Um, I also met a lot of first timers this year, especially some black musicians, musicians from HBCUs that loved it. Um, And I loved being there with them. It's it's all about community building. And I really appreciate the opportunity and the platform and the space uh, created year after year by the Sphinx organization. I have lots of uh, gratitude for um, Alpha, um Dworkin, Aaron Dorkin, the founder. Shout out to Andre, who leads uh, many of those uh, programs. Just really, really great organization that I've, you know, I've had mixed feelings about in the past. But, you know, when, when it's all said and done, I, th- I think they're really uh, doing great work. I want to Say that at the outset, um, because there's there's something about this idea of diversifying classical music um, that has inspired a shift in values and thinking for me. You know, it makes me think about, and I, I feel like I've talked about it here before, but it makes me think about the ways in which we fortify existing systems through these programs and initiatives as opposed to dismantling them and rebuilding them. We've gotten to a really great place where we're opening the door wider for uh, folks who would uh, otherwise be marginalized or not be able to make it into these spaces of so-called classical music because of systemic racism, systemic uh, patriarchy, and, and, and those sorts of things. But what if we just removed the door? And remove the walls around it. I, I think that when we talk about you know all of these people, and this isn't a slight at anyone, you know, but I think when we talk about all of these people um, who have uh, done the what was seen as impossible and traversed these systems and, and really made it work in classical music, one of the things I won't say all we're doing, but one of the things that we're doing is um, uh, platforming this industry as something that. Uh, should continue the way it is because there are Black folks participating in it. You know, I'm thinking about repertoire primarily. I'm thinking about the degree to which uh, we still don't really foreground and center living composers, how we treat this genre as a as a museum or or something from the past, as opposed to something living and something breathing. I'm really, really interested in dismantling these systems and rebuilding something new. But the more we talk about diversity in the arts, the more... I feel like we're just uh, continuing the same old thing just with a black face on it. So what does it look like to dismantle? I think that is a very um, important question, an important thing to think about. Um, and I'm continuing to think about what that looks like myself. But in the meantime, I really believe that step one is planting in people's mind the seed of truth that white supremacy culture is the foundation of classical music as we know it, even if you do have Samuel Coleridge Taylor on the stage or uh, Florence Price, William Grant still on the stage. There is a white supremacy culture that undergirds all of that, that we really have to address and engage. I want to shout out uh, Joy Goodry uh, for leading a really great panel at Sphinx about the post-classical musician. I personally believe that we can't just give that word to the status quo, that, that word classical, the phrase classical music, You know, jazz, blues. Uh, country, bluegrass, hip hop, creative music—you know, like what Andre Three Thousand is putting out, and and all of those folks—I consider that classical music. So I think we we just need to reframe the way. We think about that phrase, you know, just the the key concept of this of this podcast, but also think about the ways in which we perpetuate systems and fortify systems by centering diversity within those systems, as opposed to dismantling things and rebuilding something different. You know, I told my boss um, earlier this week, I'm falling out of love with orchestras because we won't just do the things we need to do. We won't just put Beethoven and Brahms on the shelf and center. In an actual way, living composers, we won't just hire black musicians. We we have to figure out how to get them through the the uh, the audition process and making things uh, quote unquote fair. We, they're just radical things that I feel like we could do that we won't do that the industry will benefit from if we just finally get there. So and and I, and I don't mean to discredit anyone who you know wants the uh, affirmation of winning an audition and you know. Getting, traversing the system as the system was built. I think there is room to have some uh, pride in, in that, to be proud for that. But also, as I often say, you know, being black in this country comes with so many challenges there are things that I believe are okay to just give us. Among those things are spots in American orchestras. Also, uh, now that I'm thinking about it, shout out to the Black Orchestral Network who uh, who uh, had their Day of Solidarity earlier this week. You know, so there are so many groups, uh, initiatives, collectives that are you know trying to shift things in this field. Um, including the Sphinx organization. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, all of those folks are doing good work. I'm here to talk about what it looks like if we just flip it all on its head, say goodbye to the rules, say goodbye to the status quo, and just actively do what needs to be done that we spend so much time talking about. Hire somebody black, put living Composers on your program Shelve the so-called canon For a while No one is going to die No one is going to miss out On a classical experience And the field is going to be transformed Not fortified Not enhanced It's going to be transformed Let's talk about transformation When it comes to the, the, the future ahead You know, we're in Black History Month A lot of people have started to call this Black Futures Month So maybe y'all have to adopt uh, some of that Let's think about the future And how we can radically, radically radically change things for a better arts ecosystem and more broadly a better world um, while I'm here on this microphone and thinking about it I want to call once again for a ceasefire in the Middle East let's continue to think about what colonization looks like in that context and what peace can bring us and let's continue to um fight the good fight, especially on this Black History Month 2024. And we even get an extra day (laughs) on this leap year Black History Month. So, hey, maybe we'll have to all do something special on the 29th day of February to uh, celebrate this Black History Month. Anyway, thanks so much again for listening, for all of your support. And I'll talk to y'all again next week. Until then, peace.